0: In Advent of 2011, we all experienced a renewal of the liturgy when the Church began praying and using the new translation of the Mass. Today we'll explore the blessings of the new translation of the Roman Missal with our special guest, author, Dr. Anthony Esselin. I'm Father Dave Pavanka at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Liturgy is the source and the summit of our faith. So the new translation of the Roman Missal is of central importance to all of us, and that's our topic today. On Franciscan University presents. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, filling in for Father Mike Scanlon, and we're here with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of the- theology at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, professor of biblical theology at Franciscan University. Our special guest today is Dr. Anthony Eslin, who teaches Renaissance English. Literature and the development of Western civilization at Providence College. He's a senior editor for Touchstone, a journal of mere Christianity. He is also the author and translator of a number of books, including an edition of the Divine Comedy. Dr. Esslon also wrote about the new translation for Magnificat's Roman Missal Companion. Dr. Esslon has invited us to call him Tony, as your wife calls you. So That's right. We would like to be able to do that. We want to welcome you, Doctor. And and first off. Why now? Why a new Missal now? Why a new translation now? Um, well, it seems to me that uh,
1: what, what uh, the Holy Father is trying to do is fulfill the mission of the Second Vatican Council, which was to bring the, the beauty and the wisdom of the Church to the world. And um, now it may be more clear to us than it was, let's say, 40 or 50 years ago, that the secular world is in dire need of such, uh, of, of, of things that the Church has to present to it because the secular world is a pretty dreary and drab affair. There's not much beauty out there. Uh, and um, I think that Pope Benedict wishes the Church to be uh, a prime source of beauty for, for the rest of the world. And the most beautiful thing that the Church has to offer is not great paintings or stained glass windows, but the, the, the great act of the liturgy itself. So that
0: the actual words of that are going to reveal in some manner beauty.
1: Oh, yes, yes, uh, not, not, not simply not simply truth, um, but
2: the, the splendor or the glory of that truth, too. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. Now that we're in this translation, now that we're getting used to it, it's important to recognize that this was not rushed. I mean, this was practically a decade-long affair going back to 2002 when the call was issued for a better translation. You know, in contrast, I don't want to say anything negative or beat up on the old translation, but everybody agrees it was hurried, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so it reflects that at points. Uh, and so I think we have to recognize that, you know, back then there was a different approach <coughs> to translation. I think sometimes it's called dynamic equivalence, where you take the sacred language of the liturgy and basically adapt it to the culture. Whereas I think we're beginning to recognize that there's a certain genius in going the other way. And that is taking the culture and adapting it to the the beauty of the sacred language of the liturgy and allowing God's grace to really flow out into the culture and transform the way not only we think but how we speak and how we approach God and we do so together.
1: Yes, uh, it it reminds me of what the the Second Vatican Council said in Lumen Gentium. Uh, We were supposed to be a light to the nations. Um, Not that the nations were to be a light to us. Uh, there aren't, there isn't that all that much light there that the nations have to provide. Um, I think that, uh, I think that the uh, the translation some 40 years ago, and we shouldn't maybe talk too much about it, uh, I, I think that the translators then had the idea that um, the church could only be relevant to people if it spoke a kind of workaday. Uh, rather drab in ordinary language, that people would resist something that seemed a little bit out of the ordinary or something something yeah. beautiful, yeah, uh, and I, I
3: think that was a mistake. Uh, you speak of uh, Lumen Gentium, of uh, uh, exhorting the church to become a light to the nations. I mean, that's what Lumen Gentium uh, yes. means, uh, the light of the nations, which is Christ. Uh, but I think people are entitled to ask, why did it take the church so long to figure out that the existing wattage? It wasn't nearly as uh, incandescent (laughs) as perhaps it should have been. Well, uh,
1: the story that I've been told is that um, Pope John Paul, uh, early in the 2000s, around 2001 or so, um, sat down and actually reviewed the English translation of the Mass and said, my gosh, you you folks in English-speaking countries are not really saying what the people in German-speaking countries are are, saying or French-speaking countries. In, in fact, you're, you're, you're really kind of outside the fold in many important ways. So,
0: and, and I think that's important, is that this is something that's taking place now in the English-speaking world, that it's not something that's taking place in the Spanish-speaking. And is it just because we were slower? No, uh, I, 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 it, it seems that the translators for the other
2: language groups were a great deal more faithful to the to the original text. They emphasized precision much more and less dynamic equivalence. But we also want to recognize the fact that the changes that were made in the liturgy way back in the 60s were being made elsewhere. I remember as a pagan teenager reading Good News for Modern Man, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, a lot of criticisms could be lodged against that translation because it was really the first in a series of these dynamic equivalents that sort of culminated in the Living Bible where Thy Word becomes Your Word as a flashlight, you know, that sort of thing, you know. And I, I can say this, that as a pagan teenager, I picked it up and those little line drawings appealed to me. Sure. You know, Not because the Word of God was so lofty, but because I wasn't, you know. Uh-huh. So, it there might be you, some you, use, you, sure. you know. there There was some use. Sometimes, you know, when you study the ways of God in salvation history, as I do in the Scriptures, you realize that... God graciously gives us what we need sometimes, but He also gives us what we want other times. And I think He did that back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Go ahead. If that's what you want, see how it works. And we look at it now, decades later, and say, thank you, but let's go
3: back to something much more precise. Well, it's not just a question of precision. It's it's not that we're aspiring after greater accuracy. Beauty as well. Uh, you know, beauty looks after herself, but uh, she does need some deference. Uh, well. And, and uh, she was trashed uh, over the past 40 years. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed, Scott, that you, you, you ceased somehow to be a pagan, <laughs> I mean, despite uh, the good news uh, the for modern yeah, yeah. yeah. grace <laughs> is bigger than the transverse. Uh, right. yeah. But, I mean, you know, those who marry the spirit of the age, they end up widows. Uh, And and I think that's what has happened. Uh, There's been an impoverishment uh, of not just the aesthetic uh, experience, Uh, but uh, theology. As I read the documents
1: of the Second Vatican Council, it it appears to me that the fathers of the Council wished to make the beauty of the Church more available to the common people. Um, They had their stained glass windows. Fine, but now let them also, the people, not just a few choristers, learn Gregorian chant. Let them also learn uh, Renaissance polyphony, not just the few people in the choir. Um,
2: Let them do more of the speaking at Mass of the great. Tony, understand this point. This is is really important because when you actually read the documents of Vatican II, pride of place goes to Gregorian chant. And I mean, yeah, and, sec- and second, right,
1: of place goes to Bl- Polyphony.
2: polyphony yeah. 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 yeah, And so, I mean, these are not deviations from the Council; these are stipulated by the Council. Much to my surprise, when I first read the documents. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it, it, and and it, it seems to me then that the 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 revision of, of the English translation is much more in keeping with the intent of the Council Fathers, as I read yeah. the yeah. document on the liturgy, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, and and. and uh,
3: Lumengensia. Yeah, you know, it, it, It's it, there's a sense in which that impulse was profoundly anti-democratic, because it sort of patronized people and said, "Look, you're not really smart enough to uh, learn Palestrina." Uh, so <laughs> you, you know, you get uh, John Jip, uh, uh, and and that I, I think is a swindle, and and it produced this aesthetic ordeal for great numbers of people in the pew. Why not elevate uh, the taste or, of the masses yeah, instead of th- leveling th- 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 uh, the th- liturgy? Th- th- there's
1: a, there's a funny thing here. You're, you're you're, you're, uh, you're playing my song. Uh, if uh, if we actually look at what common people have done, not just in the Catholic Church, but in the Protestant churches too, with regards, for instance, to music, but also to prayer, we, we don't find that the common people um, were in favor of getting rid of the uh, uh, Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the translation from... Elizabethan times, they weren't in favor of that. Right. Uh, they, they're ones who preserved a kind of Appalachian version of, of Renaissance right. polyphony in shape note singing yeah. passed on from generation to generation by choir masters yeah. among common people. Yeah. It, was, it was not the common people who, who said in the, the silly season in the, in the early 70s, you know, when, when everybody was wearing plaid bell bottom pants, uh, the decade that taste forgot. <laughs> um, it, w- it was not they, they that said, yeah. "Hey, you know, um, we, we're really bothered by uh, these artworks in our churches right. here. This yeah. statue of the Sacred Heart. Isn't there a pond somewhere we can toss them?" Um, <laughs> right. th- they didn't do that. Right. So no, no, no. There, was the el- there was a kind of there was a kind of
0: elitism right,
1: right. Uh, be- behind the move towards drab. What we
0: really want is modern. So much modern of the, drab. the new translation, the language that's being used is, is beauty, and we're here. Yes. Beauty, even the title of your article. Uh, the art of translation, which I found interesting, the art, not the science, but the art. Uh, who did the work? Who did the translation? How is it yeah. that that they brought about something more beautiful, that process of, of the translation?
1: Uh, the International Committee on English in the Liturgy, reconstituted by the Pope. Yeah, right. um, uh, I'm not certain of who exactly <laughs> was on that committee, right. but uh, they seem, as I, uh, and I, I've reviewed now, uh, and commented on probably about a thousand, maybe more than a thousand of the prayers that they've translated. Oh. And over and over, I find that they are uh, keenly attuned to exactly what the Latin says, but more than that, the the form of the prayer, there's the poetic form, right. yeah. and um, the the artistry of the prayer. When I looked at the prayers in Latin for the first time, because I was given the, by Magnificat, I, I was given the complete Latin um, missal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I started to read these Latin collects, for instance, the gathering prayers at the beginning of Mass. And it occurred to me, these are poems. Yeah. They are poems. Now, the theological poems in prose. They, um, they uh, play upon scriptural uh, echoes. They, they, they use certain images, metaphors. They build to a climax. Sometimes there's even a kind of cunning rhyme inside it, as when uh, a prayer will begin with the, wor- with the word humilitate and build to caritate yeah, at the end. Sure. So we move from, from humility to the fullness of charity. And I said, well, this, this poem here, right. yeah. uh, a scriptural and theological prose poem, needs to be translated
2: as such you
1: into know. whatever language That's you're the having. key I
2: think because it's it's not just beauty which many people regard as being mostly a subjective affair it's not it's, a it's sure. not I mean. a subjective sure, sure. Affair. but, but the fact is you? there's a dignity that is proper to these sorts of prayers and readings that we recognize in other parts of the culture. I mean, wherever there are solemnities, in the courtroom, you know, here on campus at commencement or baccalaureate, nobody thinks it's strange that the the president or the dean gets up and speaks in what might otherwise be regarded as non-conversational prose. Because the solemnity really calls for the dignity and the beauty of the language. When you read, you know, the Gettysburg Address on right. such a solemn occasion, you recognize the poetic style, the beauty, the dignity of that, and how fitting it is for
3: that occasion, and how much more fitting it is for the occasion of the sacred <coughs> liturgy. Yeah, uh, m- maybe we should stop dumping on the past. Uh, I, I, I think yeah, I'm, sure. I'm the chief. Uh, 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 spokesman uh, for that Uh, but nevertheless some kind of revolution must have transpired uh, in taste uh, uh, to overcome uh, the dead weight of, of the past, because it, it's really the same clerical establishment. But for some reason, those staffing the committee now are gifted with a kind of poetic sensibility, whereas their forebears were the architects of the ruin. Uh, they were the ones who hijacked sure. the Mass uh, and left it in ruins, but now
0: it's been somehow resurrected and that to me it's is a astonishing. a wondrous thing. It's a wondrous thing. Having spent time with it then, you're pleased with the translation? Very pleased, yeah. And what makes a great translation is its poetic nature it's beauty it, it I think there's a value that it that it actually draws us out of our everyday life and yes. allows us into something which the church itself should do if it's beautiful the language should do it as well uh, uh, everyone I suppose watching the show has gone to the
1: Department of Motor Vehicles um, I'd rather not feel like I was at the DMV <laughs> when when I go to mass um, that 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 is, that is something special. I mean, even at the beginning of baseball games of all things, we begin by singing the national anthem.
3: Right. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah.
2: you're, you're emphasizing in this translation the exalted glory of God. Yes. And at the same time, we're acknowledging, you know, our fault, our fault, our most grievous fault. I mean, we didn't just sin against our parents, you know, or against some policeman who pulled us over. The God of the universe yeah. who is thrice holy. Right. He is the one right. that we are confessing to, and yet He is the one who sent His Son to die for us. Yeah.
3: I, mean, to reflect, so genuine, yeah, I think disproportion- to reflect that disproportion between ourselves and God, we need a special language that has to be elevated, hieratic, beautiful. We would want dignified. that special language even if we were just writing a love letter
1: yep. to um, our sweetheart back home if we were yep. stationed in Colorado
0: or something in the Army.
2: Only God uh, is writing His love letter. Yes.
0: Indeed, and we need to be able to see it that way. So, we'll talk about that when we come back from the break, what it is that makes the, the New Liturgy and the New Missal beautiful, but also what are some of the specifics that have changed we'll talk about that stay with us one of the uh...
3: things i really like about the uh... the new translation uh, obviously the mass hasn't changed it's still in latin originally it's the translation that we have brought forward and in the translation they're translating credo in unum deum as I believe in one God which is really what it means literally whereas for all uh, the pri- these past years we've translated it as we believe in one God and we begin our creed at Mass that way.
0: I know that what's being taught here is Catholic and that is what I believe and it's what the church teaches. We're Christians, little Christ. We don't go around always talking about Jesus but Jesus is always at the heart of every conversation because our relationship is built on Christ, the same way this school is built on Christ. After we've come here and, and gotten our formation and grown in our faith, we're called to go out and share the truth, Jesus Christ, with the rest of the world. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. Welcome back. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, in today for Father Mike Scanlon. We're here with our regular panelists, Dr. Scott Hahn and Dr. Regis Martin, and our special guest, Dr. Tony Esselin. And we've been talking about the new Roman Missal and the translation of the Roman Missal. In the first segment, we talked kind of big picture, the beauty, the grandeur of it. Uh, Now specifics. We've been in this for almost two months now, and and we're not quite used to what we're supposed to say when, but why some of the very specific changes? Help us understand the beauty of that, the significance of them. Well. Let's take, for instance, the
1: first prayer uh, that that uh, uh, we we would we, we we heard from the priest on the first Sunday of Advent, so when, the, when the translation was spanking new for us. Um, the priest says in that collect, uh, "Grant us, Lord, we pray, the resolve to run forth to meet yeah. Your Christ." Right. Um, right. Okay. Uh, it's a beautiful prayer. The prayer is a, a, a compact little poem, theological poem. And with that wonderful and very precise and v- very cunning, uh, a really, really uh, subtle translation uh, of the Latin, we've brought back a whole scene from Scripture. Right. Yeah. That's absolutely appropriate for Advent. The resolve to run forth to meet your Christ. And just like that comes, should come back to us the image, sure. the image of the five... Uh, wise virgins with their lamps filled with oil, yeah. Yeah. who ran forth to meet the bridegroom as He was coming. Um, and we pray in that collect, the priest prays on our behalf, that, that, that we will have the resolve to run forth to meet your Christ, the pronoun is yeah. very tender and personal, filled with righteous deeds, in Latin, justis operibus. Deeds of righteousness, or deeds of justice. Yeah. So, so our lamps are filled with that oil right, right. as we run forth. It's
3: incredibly rich.
1: Uh, isn't and, it, and it gets even richer yeah. because at the end of that prayer, and again, this is just a short little prayer, like right. a short poem. Yeah. The, um, the, the priest prays that um, if we do run forth to meet Christ with our lamps filled with oil, we will be gathered at His right side yeah. in glory. Not at His side in glory, but at His right side in glory. And just like that, it brings up another parable of Jesus that has to do with the uh, Second Coming, right? Um, when the sheep will be divided from the goats, and those will be placed at His right hand who who did the
2: will of the Lord on earth. And also Psalm 110, Sit thou at my right hand, because that's the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New. What you're pointing out in these collects is true, I think, also in the other parts of the translation that we have week to week, and with your spirit. How awkward is that? Well, it's not really awkward if you read Galatians 4.16, or if you turn to, you know, 2 Timothy 4.23, you know… Right. It's, you, you it's, they're cited in the Magnificat uh, uh, Roman Missal Companion. Right.
1: Yeah, very I mean, or passages. if
0: you go to Mass in other languages.
2: That's right. Yes. In, in, in yeah. French, in German, in Spanish, they've always retained that. And right. why? Because, you know, when you're looking at Philippians 4 or 2 Timothy 4, uh, these passages are not just saying, hey, how are you doing? Fine, how are you? It really is, you know, the Lord be with you. It's not the Lord is with you. He's invoking the the divine, the Holy Spirit. And we are also saying, and and with your spirit. So that it isn't just uh, back and forth on a strictly horizontal plane, it's also recognizing how the Lord is not intruding, but He is present to give us what we lack, and that is the Holy Spirit.
1: I was asking an interesting question on this score uh, uh, some time ago when I was talking about the New Translation. Um, A a woman asked me, uh, is it true then that when you say, and with your spirit, you are referring to the priest? And I said, well, yes. (laughs) And she said, well, I thought when we said, and also with you, we were just referring to everybody. I said, no, no, no. Um, This is an ambiguity in the English language, you and you. It it can mean one person or can mean more than one person, but the Latin, dominus vobiscum, that the priest says, the Lord be with you all, okay? And we answer, et cum spiritu tuo, and that's specific. That's one person and with your spirit. So, we are all now praying for the priest. From, he that, that the the Holy Spirit will be
3: present to him in a special way, right. yeah. that he will be able to. And, lead and us. the word Spirit, I think, designates that singularity. It's the point of entry into the deepest. Uh, part of, of the person, the heart, the soul. That's pretty expressive uh, when you put it that way. But but to go back to that metaphor uh, of running yeah. uh, to meet Christ, that, that is so lovely. Uh, it, it's replete uh, with, with a sense of immediacy. It has a texture to it. You can see it. Uh, you can do what Ignatius calls a composition of place. You can see yourself running. Yeah. You can you can picture Jesus uh, summoning you, welcoming you, uh, urging you on to finish this, uh, this blooming, Race. I, I, I think of a line from Chariots of Fire, one of my favorite movies. Uh, the the sister of the young man who runs all the time. She wants him to come to China to dispense be a Bibles. Missionary. Yeah, be a missionary, and he's intending to be that. But in the meantime, he's running, and she's exasperated, and she says, "Why do you run?" And he says, "Because I feel God's pleasure." And, and that metaphor of running and pleasure, uh, to me, when when they're harnessed together, convey
0: exactly what what the Mass uh, uh, aims to uh, communicate. My, one of my experiences with, with the New Translation has been, I remember in seminary when we were going through homiletics, they said you could preach on the colics and the prayers. I don't believe that I ever did in 15 years of priest, But I have preached on the new prayers. I have preached, I had a homily on, and with your spirit. It's... It's an opportunity to draw out those right. images that, that people have just missed. And, and I found that to be incredibly rewarding, to be able to talk about and preach about this change. What would be some other changes that you find significant that, that the people of God might miss yeah. had they not have some explanation? Just a couple dozen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> They're all over the place. I, mean. um, I give you another example of, uh, of, of, of a, uh, the accuracy of translation. Um, flowing together very nicely with uh, the poetry and the beauty of translation and theological profundity all at once. Um, One of the the best changes that they made um, at a very important part of the Mass when the priest is consecrating the the wine in the chalice, okay, and he repeats the words of Jesus at the institution of the sacrament. Um, This is the chalice of my blood. Which will be, and now here comes the the change. And people will say, "Well, well what, what's the difference?" Well, um, note the, the priests have been saying in English for 30, 38 years, which will be shed for you. Okay, but the Latin word is fundator, and literally it means poured yeah. poured out for you. Yeah. Now, um, that's a, that's more, much more immediate. Right. Right. And physical word, yeah. because we pour things all the time. Right. right. But it, it's the perfect word too for just this moment, because, unlike the verb shed, it applies both to blood, and to wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that's absolutely perfect. Right. Yeah, when when you're, the, when,
3: yeah, when you're serving people wine, you don't say, can I shed a little wine here for you? You pour it out. And He's pouring out His blood for us.
1: And that verb immediately yeah. cause, should cause us to remember the pouring out of the wine from the earthen vessels in the, at, at, at Cana, the miracle of Cana, but also the pouring in the the fruit of the vine in the uh, Eucharist,
2: the eternal Eucharist. Right. Let me supplement this from a biblical perspective though because it's precisely the blood of the sacrifices that's poured on the altar. And so it's not just shed, that's done in the slaughter. But the liturgical action that pertains to the sacrificial victims is precisely in the blood being poured for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. you know more often than not i have found in almost every single instance of where the translation has been rendered more precise more dignified more poetic more beautiful it is more biblical it is more right. oh much more biblical evoking right. you know from the rising of the sun to its setting this this holy this that's clean the prophet malachi malachi 1:11 1, right. right. one of the most frequently deployed texts in the preaching and apologetics in the first 4 centuries of the church you know, was lost, yeah. you know, from the right. I won't get into the critique of the sure, old. Sure. Form, okay, give you another example of this, right?
1: And mm-hmm. and, and this, this is why um, I believe that, uh, uh, if anything, the new translation would will be of greater use for the um, preaching, uh, of evangelization of, right. uh, 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 of the world and also bringing Protestants and Catholics together. When we uh, complete the dialogue with the priest before communion, the priest says, the priest has been saying now for six weeks, right? Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are they who are called to the Supper of the Lamb. This is my favorite. <laughs> and now, right. And now we, now we say, we say what the centurion said to Jesus. Remember that the centurion had a servant who was dying, and Jesus offered to go to the man's house. Well, the man was a pagan. And Jesus would have inc- un- incurred ritual uncleanness. Yeah. The, this man, the centurion, knew that. Yeah. He was perhaps a Jewish uh, proselyte. Um, he had, we, we are told, given money to build a synagogue for the Jews. Yeah. He, uh, but and he still was a centurion. He so it was over occupation. He was a centurion, right. And, and, and he he understands in some sense that he's he, he, Jesus should not really come into his house, but it doesn't matter to him. Because he doesn't need to see right. Christ laying his hands upon his servant. Yeah. He believes that the healing can be done without having to see it with the eyes of his body. Yeah. He sees it with the eyes of faith. So he says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, yeah. but only say the word and my servant shall be healed. Yeah. We're now saying those words. Right. We're in his position in two ways, right? We, um, we also are not worthy that Jesus should come to us. But we also are saying, we're making an affirmation of faith, right? right. We're saying... We do not need to see you right. with the eyes of our body yeah. right here, right now. Yeah. We know that you are present. Yeah. Only say the word. That's right. right, you have authority. Yeah. But also, we put ourselves, and this is the beauty of this, uh, the amazing beauty of this prayer and the profundity of it, we yeah. also at the same time put ourselves in the position of the servant who needs to be healed. Right. So, the only word that's changed there is um, my my servant right becomes yeah. now my soul so we are in the position of the right. centurion begging yeah. in faith yeah. uh, for the miracle Humility and in the position of the servant. It's it's, it's extraordinary that that
3: such a a rich multiplicity of meanings would converge upon a single text. All all you have to do is translate. Just tease it out. If you
0: know the Scripture. Right, and that's just it, is that I think some people are going to say, vaguely, there's something about that that sounds familiar. They might not be able to identify where it came from. So, I think that's the role of the catechists and the priests to be able to help people to understand exam- that. What's going on
3: What here. catalyzes a curiosity about where did this come from?
0: Right. Maybe I'll go back to the Scriptures. The, the
2: example you gave, right, leading up to that, you know, not happier those who are called to the supper but blessed are oh, those yeah. who are called yeah. to the supper, supper of the, Lord. Lord. the lamb i mean that's revelation 19 it's, through 22 that's the climax of scripture it's the yeah. consummation of salvation <laughs> history <laughs> right. it is the it's not a
3: happy meal at mcdonald's <laughs> it's not
2: <laughs> right, right, right come it really to supper, is. the words Passover. are taken verbatim from the angel oh, in revelation right? yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean over and over again there, there's one that we'll have to come back to after the break i'm afraid but and that is the one extra biblical term that finally gets a more precise rendering and that is homo from the Nicene Creed, because okay. that's not in the Bible, but it protects right. what is in the Bible, right. that Jesus' divine sonship is not a
0: metaphor. This is not figurative. Right. This is metaphysical. This is real But what that reminds us is, is that's the a, importance of words, is yeah. the homoousios homoousius. I mean, small differences, but those changes and those differences are radically important. Right. And the New Translation allows us to see that, the importance that we have in a word. Well, that,
3: that word "pouring out," I, I think, yeah. is suggestive of uh, the hymn from Philippians as well. The kenosis, the self-emptying of God in the incarnation, and then the pierced uh, side uh, of Jesus on the cross. Everything is poured out. He empties himself. He's right. completely depleted. There's That's nothing what you left. Do with the jar right. That's right. of, right. of something. Right. It's not fastidious. You pour it out. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. There's nothing left.
2: Right. And Paul himself describes his own life in Philippians as something about to be poured out,
3: too, because
2: we're going to imitate the mystery we celebrate by
1: martyrdom. And all these associations return um, because the translators were humble enough to render the Latin word for poor as English poor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It took us a while to get there. But we're getting <laughs> there. That's right. They
1: did not think it was their job to translate wine into water.
0: <laughs> so, up next we'll take a look at how the church can fruitfully implement this new translation. Stay with us.
1: Mark Twain once said that the difference between almost the right word and the right word was like the difference between a lightning bug and a lightning bolt. And I believe we can see that Uh, with one very important word in the Creed. The Latin reads incarnatus. And we've been saying, um, was born of the Virgin Mary, but that's not actually what it means. Um, Yes, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, but the word says that He took flesh of the Virgin Mary. He was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. This is important for us because that didn't happen at Christmas. He had already taken flesh of the Virgin Mary for nine months. In fact, the time the world changes is when the Incarnation occurs.
3: Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy, and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu/pilgrimages.
0: Welcome back, and we're here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, surrounded by our students working the equipment, and our theology faculty on the panel, and with our guest, special guest, Dr. Anthony Eslin, Tony Esslin. We're talking about the new translation of the Mass, and Dr. Esselin, what what do you think our Holy Father Pope Benedict desires from this? What's his goal? What's his hope for this new translation, this new missal?
1: That we should enter more fully, in spirit, in, into the uh, 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 the glory of the Mass, not 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 simply what it, what the words actually do mean, but the the splendor of, of of the whole story of salvation and, and the splendor uh, um, of the portrayal of that story of salvation in, in, the, in, in the poetry of the Mass.
0: We've been doing this for two months now. Right. Are we getting it? How, so. how, how are we going to get it? What, what do we need to do as a church to see that most people in the pews yeah. experience this? Well, Rather than, it's just a change. We just, we just use different words. What do we need to do to make sure we get this right? We need to pray
1: about it, meditate upon it. Um, Let let what strikes us now as uh, uh, unusual or unexpected uh,
2: sink into our hearts. See, that's the key, because I think the awkwardness has itself a, a really important pedagogical value because we're so accustomed to saying things, we don't, it isn't like that we said them too much, that we just pondered them too little. But now that it's new and somewhat awkward at first, and I think it will be for the first year, I think people are gonna still find themselves falling back And and, and then the second pedagogical moment will be when this is ingrained and habituated in us, and I think there'll be a deepening, a maturing at that point. But for now, this awkwardness, I think, is highly instructive because every time we hear it, we're like, okay, why that change? And we might not answer it in that moment, but later on, we're gonna be thinking back and saying, and with your spirit. Or we're gonna be saying, you know, to to men of goodwill, you know, and these sorts of things. I think what's important
0: about this, Scott, that the mass doesn't belong to me as the priest, it, it belongs to the church and it's going to be incumbent on people to ask the questions, why have we done this and, and to wrestle with those issues themselves yeah. so that it's not just me who does that, which I have found as a priest, this transition being wonderfully beautiful and causing me to pray the prayers yeah. in, in a manner that I haven't for a while because we kind of get used to it, but and at, at the
3: deepest else. level, I, I think we have to acknowledge it doesn't even belong to the church. Sure. This is opus Dei. This is the work of God. These sure. are these are God's words, uh, and we have to preserve them. Uh, and, and so, to ask the question, "Are we getting it?" Uh, in in one sense begs the question because uh, we, we need to be told anyway, even if we don't get it. How many people got? the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus first <laughs> yeah, preached the Beatitudes, or, or in a secular context, how many people cottoned on to uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, speaking the Gettysburg Address? I mean, most people viewed it as a failure, and in, in fact, they wondered, is he, is he done? What's going on here? The guy that followed him, who was that chap, The Edward Everett? Everett. He went on for hours and hours, and they thought, this is a, a bloody masterpiece, Lincoln could only work up a couple hundred words, nobody's <laughs> going to rem- remember this stuff. I mean, so, On the I mean, back it, of an it, envelope. Yeah, <laughs> it has a matter whose meaning may remain fairly elusive to great numbers of people. How many people become saints? But it, if you have the small leaven, I, I think you but can I raise
0: think it's the whole for, lump. important for we as priests and, and catechists and, and those more invested in this to provide… Yeah, that, you have to get it. To, yeah. To, well, to provide right. that invitation, yeah. that it's not, we're just speaking different words, but uh, my experience again for the brief time that we've been able to do this and, and leading up to it was a great opportunity for evangelization. When, when John Paul speaks of the new evangelization, those people that are in the pews, they're asking themselves, well, why, why all these changes? Why are we doing this? It provides us an, a wonderful opportunity to speak about the beauty and the dignity and the glory of the man.
1: One thing I would say to, to priests is that um, they should understand that they're not reading prose, right? They, they are not um, declaring facts. Uh, as if they were standing up in front of a, um, a board of directors, sure. you know, sure. re- reading off a chart. Uh, you, are, you are reading poetry, you are reading oratory. Mm-hmm. And so the, um, uh, the line breaks that the editors have provided should guide you in your declamation of these words. Um, the, there, there, you should also, as you say the words, have a poetic sense of the structure of a whole prayer, or the, the complex structure of a sentence. And and in your own speech, uh, as if you were reciting poetry, well, to, to, to be able to bring the people into the fullness. I, I,
0: felt of I felt I was in some ways going through seminary again because finding myself in the evenings, reading through those, practicing it, practicing it in a sense of that I want to be able to do it well and do it beautiful. And to read a beautiful poem takes practice. You
2: know, to combine the insights that the both of you just offered a a moment ago, you know, it will preach. But I think one of the reasons why it will be so effective in the New Evangelization is because it is restoring not only more of a clear connection with the biblical, but it's also connecting us with the fact that the sacraments that we celebrate in the context of the liturgy are not primarily what we do for God, but what God does for us. Yeah. We're not doing these things to kind of get him to do what we
3: want. He's doing them to empower us to do what he wants. When you when you sit down and write a letter to someone you love and you gave that yes. example, I think it's endlessly helpful. I, I, I,
1: let, let me give an example yeah. of this. I've actually used this for uh, audiences that. Uh-huh. have asked me to speak about the new translation. E- almost everybody remembers um, the, the famous beginning of the poem, the love poem, that Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote to her husband, the poet Robert Browning. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Yeah. Yeah. We all remember this. We we remember it not because at the time that the Brownings were writing, people used thou and thee. They, they didn't anymore um, unless they lived out in the countryside in England. Yeah. Um, it was it, it, it was a form of poetic right. Uh, exaltation, right? It's a somewhat elevated language for poetry, but also the rhetorical question yeah. there: "How do I love thee? Let me count the ways." Yeah. We don't we don't speak like that. We don't speak in rhetorical questions in that right. in that way. Right. We would say, "Hmm, let me make a list of the many ways in which I love you." Yeah. And if that had been the but, but you would remember it. Right?
3: right. But yeah, and you're always at pains uh, to make certain that it doesn't sound like a, a shopping list. Yeah, you know, this right. is, you know, I need to buy the bacon and the milk and maybe a hamburger. You're talking to someone you love, and so the yeah. language is a little more exalted. But if it's the language of God and He's writing a letter to us charged with His love, then it's going to have a language whose verticality has got to be respected. I I think
1: of this in terms of Bible translation generally. Um, For instance, one of the great lines from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is warning us not to worry so much about things that might happen to us tomorrow. (laughs) And He says, Behold the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet, yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Behold the lilies of the field, how they grow. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's stunning. Okay? Yeah. The, the um, somewhat out of the way verb behold, yeah. uh, the, the delicate description of these flowers. They're the lilies of the field. And almost we can see them. Yeah. Um, we, we can see a, a vast field in lilies growing up. Yeah. Behold the lilies of the field, then the pause, how they grow. Yeah. How different is that from, look at how the wildflowers grow. Right. Right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. I mean, Robert Burns says, my love is a red, red rose. He could have said, you know, my love is like a posy of, you know, like a wildflower, but it doesn't carry the
0: freight. Uh, It doesn't have that felicity that you're expecting from, from a love affair. And hopefully the Missal allows us, the New Translation allows us to see a beauty that was always there. Yes. It is by highlighting it and some of the changes causes us to ask the question, what did I miss? Why is this? And why is this important? But your invitation to the priest, my invitation often to the lady is that this is going to take a little work, that, that this is the most beautiful gift that we have in the, in the liturgy, in the Eucharist. So it might take taking something home and reading and reading the article that we're, we're going to provide. I, I think the
2: real test is what we'll, what difference it'll make in, in three to five years. Because I think Absolutely. what we'll discover then uh, by the time it's it's subliminal, it's below the conscious, it's not something that we see as awkward anymore, I think we're going to discover after years that this has restored the sense of the transcendent, yeah. that the holiness of God as well as His love yeah. have really been restored. You mentioned the word verticality. I mean. Horizontality has been the rule for so long. And you can see why, because, you know, American culture back in the 50s and 60s, Ozzie and Harriet, you know, it might have seemed, you know, sufficiently innocuous for us to harness for the liturgy. You know, decades later, we realize it's beyond the banal. It's it's degradation. Let's not use the culture any longer to kind of norm the liturgy. Let's use the
0: liturgy to convert the culture. Absolutely. How do we deal with, those individuals, and I think it's ultimately going to be a few, but who are frustrated, who find this confusing. Um, What do we have to offer to that? Well,
3: what does the priest uh, have to offer? I think it lays upon the priest uh, not not just a, a huge, but a solemn, a catechetical obligation. I mean, oh, catechesis yeah. is rooted in worship, and that's what you're doing. Uh, you're you're presiding over the worship of God, the, the adoration of the triune God, and you have to explain to people when you when you climb into the pulpit, why do we use uh, "blessed" instead of "happy," uh, and that's a splendid opportunity, I, I think. Partially, the more, difference.
1: More optimistic, <laughs> you know, perhaps than than you or Father Ivan. I, I think. Uh, for instance, let's suppose that you suddenly decide to uh, adorn a corner of your church with a beautiful statue of St. Michael the Archangel. Um, the common people will not say, my gosh, what is this thing doing here? Yeah. <laughs> um, their first reaction will be, well, this is a beautiful statue of St. Michael the Archangel. Um, they, they, they will, I think, be uh, increasingly in, enticed and, and delighted by um, what, what we are doing. No,
0: and I, I, I agree with you. But my experience has also been people coming up to me and, and already sharing frustration as we were going through this process. And, and I think you're right, is that on the one hand, it is the invitation to the priest, to the catechist, to the parish community, to be able to help alleviate that. And, and I think as they see the beauty, they see the goodness of it, um, it'll begin to well. Something will stir in them that says, okay, this indeed is beautiful, this is a good thing. But change is difficult. Change is difficult for some people more than others. You know, take the word blessing. I, uh, I think that people recognize that happy
2: comes and happy goes. Yes. But blessing abides. It's a statement. Yeah. That's and right. it's, for yeah. me, as a theologian of the covenant, you know, the covenant blessings and the, and the discipline of the covenant curses, you know. But the blessings of the covenant are precisely why Jesus Christ became man suffered, died, and rose to give us divine life even when we don't feel happy. Right. That's right. Blessed.
1: The word happy, in fact, in English is etymologically related to things that happen by chance. Mm. Um, yeah. You are happy. Uh, it's, it's actually related in, in English uh, to... to uh, well, a similar word would be lucky. Um, team one. Right. You're, you're, you're happy. You're, you're team
3: one and things right. have worked out well for you. So it's accidental. It doesn't really abide. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I, um, Scott was talking about uh, words that have to deal with holiness, for instance, yeah. right? And he, here's, here's a change which um, the people uh, m- may have picked up on a, a week or so ago. That is, when the priest in the consecration of the Mass, in the Eucharistic prayer, Um, is uh, uh, using some special words that apply particularly to uh, the Christmas vigil or to the Mass and Christmas Day. He he, uh, is saying now in English what translates the Latin adjective Sacratissimum. It's in the Latin Sacratissimum noctem and Sacratissimum diem, that most sacred night, that most sacred day. Not that night, Right. for that day, but it's that special. most yeah, sacred yeah, yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and if you hear this, you say, well, yes, yes, uh, uh, um, it was a sacred night, a most sacred night. Uh, uh, would that we had been there, you know, yeah. right, um, to, to have been one of those lowly and, and raffish shepherds showing up at, at um, uh, Bethlehem to, um, to, to adore the Christ child, that was a sacratissimum note. Right. And, and so, all these words yeah. that have to do with holiness yeah. and glory return, uh, and they're in the Latin right. and other language groups have been hearing them and saying them for all these years now we will be also. You know.
0: That's, beautiful. That's yeah, beautiful. I mean, how do you point.
3: communicate the glory of God, the doxa, the kabod? You have to use words, yes. but the words have got to be adequate to the reality they signify. and and. The translation, I think, renders that. I tell possible. my students
0: all the time that, that little things matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that we don't get God doesn't get lost in in little things. So these words, these changes, have significant meanings. And, and ultimately, if they help draw us in to the Mass and the Eucharist, uh, what a blessing that will be. Well, when we return, each of us will share our final thoughts on the new translation of the Roman Missal. Stay with us. This university is different because um, not only, it's going to sound cliche, but that academically challenging, passionately Catholic, like it's not a lie. It's, it's an it's a academically prestigious school, but it has this
3: Catholic environment that is unlike anything else I've ever seen or experienced firsthand. Priests are very available um, to hear confessions and just spiritual direction, you know, do the sacraments. Franciscan University is academically challenging and
0: passionately Catholic. to come to the end of our discussion on the new translation of the Roman Missal. And it's time for some final words from our panelists. Regis, I'd like you to go first. Yeah, uh, well let me
3: begin by thanking you, Tony, so much for being part of this. Uh, uh, I don't know how you find time to, uh, to teach. Uh, you've taken on so much as a, as a Renaissance man, plus the translation of Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. That, that's extraordinary. Uh, you. uh, you're an amazing fellow, and we're honored and delighted to have you here, and I know Father Cameron is grateful to have you uh, uh, in in his service. Well, well I'm grateful Turning to out do anything
1: I can for Father Cameron it's because
3: Magnificat is a wonderful superb. publication. It really is. Uh, uh, there are so many things, uh, so many blessings uh, we derive from from the new translation that it's difficult to uh, pick out one or, or two, uh, and, and we have uh, identified a number uh, in, uh, in the discussion. But what, what I like particularly about it is it makes provision for praise uh, and the thing about praise is it takes you out of yourself, which many times the old translation uh, discouraged because it was a celebration of, of you uh, instead of uh, a celebration of God uh, who, who, you know, who has uh, something to say about remaking you. Uh, There's something ecstatic about praise. You're lifted out of yourself and you need a vehicle, a language that gives adequate expression to what your heart is moved uh, to exclaim. You want to give thanks to God. You praise him for his great glory. Uh, Augustine has uh, has a beautiful line in The City of God. I, I think it might be book 22 in which he outlines the shape of heaven, the contours of paradise. And he says, there we shall rest And we shall see, we shall see, and we shall love, we shall love, and we shall praise. Behold what shall be in the end and will not end. Praise, that's the last word. And the Mass makes it happen uh, in this world as a kind of launching pad for
0: what we hope to be doing for all of eternity. And hopefully, Regis, that that we experience that in the liturgy each time we come to the Mass, which is so so much more than perhaps we understand. So thank you. It's always good to be with you. Scott. Yeah, I want to highlight another blessing, and that
2: is the term blessing. Uh, Back in ancient Judaism, the liturgical prayers were frequently referred to as the Barakah, the blessing. It wasn't the happiness. And I don't want to go off on, you know, bad translations, but I want to underscore how good this one is, especially as it comes near the climax where we hear how we are blessed to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, and that reminds me of, of two experiences that I had a quarter of a century ago in becoming Catholic, because on the one hand, I went to Mass as an observer, an outsider in the back row, you know, just sort of jotting notes. And then I heard the Agnus Dei. And when I heard the Lamb of God, I knew where I was. I wasn't in a basement anymore. I was in the New Jerusalem. Because I was turning to the back of the Bible and in the apocalypse, the visions of the liturgy of heaven, I realized the glory of the Holy, 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 the Lamb of God. I have somehow been lifted up, even if I didn't know what "sursum corda" meant at that point. My heart was lifted up to the Lord. The second thing I remember was picking up at a used bookstore this old St. Joseph Missal from 1962 or whenever, and I began reading it. I noticed, you know, slippage, you know. It isn't exactly the way it was, but, you know, it's the Mass, and I never experienced it before. So, you know, as Chesterton said, You know, Christianity, even when it's watered down, will boil the world to rags, you know. (laughs) So no matter how the liturgy is translated, it is the Eucharistic liturgy, but thanks be to God, it's like this, like it was and like it's been throughout the whole world. I remember taking that St. Joseph Missal home and praying it and being astonished at how it lifted my prayers in a way that mere extemporaneous prayer could never do. And that's what I'm experiencing in the liturgy now with the new translation. It just opens the heavens and gives to us a participation in nothing less than the marriage supper of the Lamb. And
0: it's high time we relearn that. And be able to experience that. Thank you very much, Scott. It's always good to be with you. Uh, Tony, parting shot. Parting shot. <laughs> well, um,
1: one of the things I noticed when I was writing the commentary for the, uh, for, for the New Translation was that um, I had to refer to Scripture constantly. I, I kept by my side a concordance Um, to the King James Bible and used that in order to find the scriptural references. And I think that I flagged about 900 to 1,000 scriptural references. These are the ones that I cited in the actual commentary that I wrote. I could have cited many more. Um, The the Mass, I knew that the Mass was steeped in Scripture, I yet had no idea how deeply steeped in Scripture it was. But it's not only that, that, that there are references to Scripture everywhere. There are references to Scripture that are structured in such a way um, as to allow you to see the whole history of salvation. In nutshell, for instance, when we ask that, in, in, when the priest asks in the Eucharistic prayer that our uh, offerings may be made spiritual and acceptable as were the offerings of your servant Abel the just, right? Um, and the offerings made by your high priest Melchizedek. And with the little words there, not just Abel, but Abel the just, and uh, not just priest Melchizedek, but high priest Melchizedek. Well, what's being done here is weaving together um, the the story of Abel with the just man in the first psalm, and and in many of the psalms, who prefigures Christ, who is the just man who walks in the way of righteousness, um, who is... Now, not just the offerer of the sacrifice, but the sacrifice himself. And, and the high, our high priest who penetrates the holy of holies not once during the year for the remission of sins on Yom Kippur, but now eternally, forever, Amen. making intercession for us at the right hand of God in the letters of the Hebrews. And all of these things are woven together in this beautiful tapestry of, of, uh, of the Eucharistic prayer. I had no
0: idea how, how intricate it was and how lovely. Beautiful. Good. And the, the Eucharist, one of my experiences has been that uh, anything that allows us to talk about the Mass, anything that allows us to be able to pray about the Mass, to be able to reflect on the Mass, has been a blessing. It's, it's tragic at times that, that our church is, is disunited in this. I, I recall what uh, has been said. Uh, Lord de Montfort said, the corruption of that which is best is worst. And, and unfortunately, at times, yeah. we argue and we find ourselves fighting and infighting. And I think, that's, I think that's the work of the evil one, in a sense, is that that place which we're supposed to be most united, praying most perfectly, loving most perfectly, worshiping, praising, blessing, all of those things, in the context of the liturgy, uh, my hope and my prayer is that through through the new translation, we begin to experience that more, that rather that it be a place of a battlefield, that this place becomes really a place of worship and a place of prayer, that we we experience that which the Lord experienced, the Lord wants us to experience, but we also experience in a greater way in depth what the church invites us to through through words, that ultimately words matter, translations matter, the things that we say matter. So that perhaps we ask ourselves as as the church gives us and provides us a new translation, um, the biggest question for us is, is, we're always taught in seminary, to answer the question, so what? So what does this matter? What difference does it make? Well, this is our faith. This is what we believe as Catholics, what we believe is the font and the summit. So to be able to talk about the liturgy with you uh, this afternoon has just been a tremendous blessing. Um, Doctor, we thank you for being with us. Just your energy, well, and your passion you. causes you me to me. think, "Oh my goodness, I need to go back to your your commentary that you wrote on the mass that is available through Magnificat. I need to go back and look at that again, so I want to thank you and, and we also, uh, if you would like, and it 's free for the asking, if you write us, we will send you the article that, that Tony okay. wrote called "The Art of Translation" that speaks about uh, the beauty of the translation of the new Roman Missal. Uh, I'm sure that you'll find it helpful and life-giving, as I have. Uh, So we want to thank our special guest, our panelists, but most especially we want to thank you for being with us this day. We ask that God would pour out His blessings upon you, He who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord watch over you and make you holy.
2: To receive a free handout on today's topic or to purchase a video of this show, call 888-333-0381, that's 888-333-0381 or call 740-283-6357. Email your request to presents at franciscan.edu or write to Franciscan University Presents, Franciscan University of Steubenville, 1235 University Boulevard, Steubenville, Ohio,
3: 43952.